Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A record set. A record number of arrests at the U.S.-Mexico border. Two million in less than 12 months. The lead starts right now. The border crisis continues, as do the political maneuvering surrounding the crisis. This time it's Delaware preparing for a possible influx of immigrants shipped from Texas via Florida to maybe Biden's home state. Plus, Hurricane Fiona's trail of destruction, CNN on the ground in Puerto Rico with the National Guard as crews try to get the U.S. island back online. And President Biden this hour headed to one of the largest gatherings of world leaders while the White House once again trying to explain the president's comments about China and Taiwan and more. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start today with our national lead, the growing immigration crisis in the southwestern United States. Right now, officials and volunteers in Delaware are making preparations after reports and flight plans suggested a plane full of migrants could be heading their way from Texas and a stop in Florida. This all comes less than one week after Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis arranged to have nearly 50 migrants flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, a liberal enclave in Massachusetts where former President Obama has a home. Critics accused DeSantis and his Texas counterpart, Governor Greg Abbott, of using human beings, including children as young as one month old, in a crass and inhumane political stunt. While the Republicans say they are just trying to highlight a border crisis exacerbated by President Biden's policies. Now, to be clear, there is a crisis at the southern border. Just last night, the White House admitted it is facing challenges getting the situation under control. They seem to be trying to soften the blow of the report out today, showing more than two million arrests over the last 11 months at the border. That is a record high. There is, of course, another issue, the legality of these political stunts by DeSantis and Abbott being debated. One Texas sheriff, a Democrat, announced a criminal investigation into participants in that move that had Venezuelans who were fleeing communism and legally seeking asylum, ending up on a plane to Florida and then to Massachusetts with no warning to or coordination with local officials and allegations by the migrants that they had been misled. CNN's Ed Lavendera starts off our coverage from San Antonio, Texas today with more on why the Bear County Sheriff believes laws may have been broken and migrants exploited. Days after dozens of mostly Venezuelan migrants were transported from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, the Bear County Sheriff says his agency is opening an investigation into the matter. Preliminarily, what we're hearing, they feel they were lied to. They feel that they were deceived in being taken from Bear County, from San Antonio, Texas, to where they eventually ended up. They feel like that was done through deceptive means. That could be a crime here in Texas, and we will handle it as such. Sheriff Javier Salazar says he believes laws were not only broken in Bear County, but that federal laws were violated as well. After he says migrants were, quote, lured to a hotel for two days, then flown to the Sunshine State and later to Martha's Vineyard under what Salazar calls, quote, 
false pretenses. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has claimed responsibility and defended the process Tuesday, saying those migrants were treated poorly by the Biden administration. They were hungry, homeless, they had no, no opportunity at all. The state of Florida, it was volunteer, offered transport to sanctuary jurisdictions because it's our view that, one, the border should be secured. And we want to have Biden reinstitute policies like remain in Mexico and making sure that people aren't overwhelming. This is the Migrant Resource Center in San Antonio. And it, this is the area where the migrants who were flowed to Martha's Vineyard told us that they were approached on these streets out here by a woman named Perla and offered that flight out of San Antonio. And what is interesting is that even after all of the news that that flight first made, Migrants here today are telling us that those offers for flights out of San Antonio are continuing. State budget records show that the Florida Department of Transportation paid $950,000 to Vertol Systems, an aviation company based in Florida, days after migrants were flown to Martha's Vineyard. According to the Texas governor's office, more than 8,000 migrants have been bused from Texas to Washington, D.C., and 675 to Chicago. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says they've received about 13,000 migrants, a number that's expected to climb. All cities in blue states and all part of a plan by some Republican governors to fly or drive migrants north in protest of the Biden administration's immigration policies. Adams said Monday that one migrant, a mother, took her own life while in a shelter after record high numbers arrived in the city on Sunday. I think the governor of uh, Texas and others are at fault for creating this man-made humanitarian crisis. And Jake, as you mentioned, uh, officials here in Texas and in Delaware, President Biden's home state, have been chasing reports throughout the course of the day that there was another flight of migrants scheduled to arrive there in that state. But Delaware officials saying this afternoon, telling CNN that so far there are no reports that migrants have arrived there, but that they continue to prepare for that possibility here in the hours or days ahead. Jake? Ed Levendera, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. She's on the Immigration and Citizenship Subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, Congresswoman, uh, let's start with the news that this uh, Democratic sh uh, Texas sheriff is announcing that his agency is going to open an investigation into participants into this uh, maneuver, this public maneuver, political maneuver, the transportation of up to 50 migrants from Texas to Florida to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, the sheriff says laws were broken in Bear County as well as, well as federal laws. Um, what's your reaction? Well, uh, Jake, first of all, it, it, this is just disgusting. What we're seeing now is disgusting. And I just have to say that first because you know I was at the forefront of the family separation crisis did the Republicans learn nothing from that, that they are once again turning this into turning human beings into political pawns, using immigration just to win elections? It's disgusting. So, yes, I think it's a good thing that the sheriff is investigating this. I think if there are state laws uh, or federal laws that have been broken, that needs to be investigated. I think we need to look at the fact that this behavior is continuing. And if these Republicans think that shipping people across the country to different places is going to turn people against immigrants. It's actually only increasing the compassion that Americans have towards these immigrants. And people are pulling together to try to be compassionate and welcome them into communities instead of doing what DeSantis and Abbott are doing, which is just 
disgusting. There's no other word for it. They and their supporters say that they are trying to get attention to a border crisis uh, with two million arrests uh, uh, at the border in the last uh, less than 12 months, uh, which is a record. Uh, And they say that they need uh, blue states to share the burden. Um, What do you say to that? Well, blue states already share the burden because people do actually go and get transported across the country to different states. We have a lot of people that we welcome into Washington state, and we're proud of that. But they don't do it by being tricked to get on a bus and then being shipped to places that aren't ready to receive them. That's number one. Number two, Republicans have no interest in trying to fix this. Don't forget, Jake, that when Donald Trump was president in March of 2019, he actually ended the support that we were giving to Central American countries to to, uh, actually stop, uh, you know, help aid people in their country so that they wouldn't necessarily feel that they had to make the journey here. And because of that, he destabilized the assistance that we need to give as part of the holistic solution. Number two, he put in place all these things that eliminated legal ways for people to come into this country. Let me just tell you that when we said to Haitians that they could actually come to the ports of entry and there was a legal way for them to be able to get into this country, then all of a sudden, that's what they did. 97% of Haitians do it that way. We've done that with Ukrainians. If we had legal processes, people would use those legal processes. And finally, don't tell me we need more money at the border. We have continued to increase money at the border, but we haven't done it by also fixing the legal immigration system and providing people the opportunity and ways to come in here legally. I want to get your reaction to something a Venezuelan man told our affiliate KSAT at a migrant resource center in San Antonio. He says he'd been offered a deal that even he knew was too good to be true. Quote, no one is going to gift you four days at a hotel with free food. Then they're going to pay for a flight because you're an immigrant. No, they're lies. They're doing it for another purpose, unquote. He went on to share this message for governors transporting migrants and individuals offering false hope. He said, quote, stop doing it. If you're going to help people do it out of your heart, don't utilize us immigrants. We don't want to be used as toys in your political games, unquote. Uh, That's from one of these Venezuelan migrants. We should note uh, that the Venezuelans uh, are fleeing horrific, oppressive conditions under the Marxist communist Maduro government. Uh, This is a different situation than from other migrants. No, that's exactly right. I couldn't say it better than he did. I am sick and tired of people using Republicans, using immigrants as political pawns. And yes, uh, a majority of those who were sent to Martha's Vineyard and many that are coming to the border right now are fleeing the Maduro regime. And that's why I referenced the Northern Triangle countries, because many of those countries, people are fleeing war. They're fleeing destitution. They're fleeing violence. And a seeking asylum is legal, Jake. It is not something that is not legal. It is part of our uh, human rights conventions that we have signed, international human rights conventions. So it's, it's just very frustrating because Republicans want to use immigration as a political football, but they don't actually want to fix the system. And I just have to say also that every time they say the border's open and all these people are storming over, they actually are inviting more people to come to the border because they're claiming it's open. So So, they are also a big part of the problem. In 2001, for people who aren't familiar, you founded an advocacy group that pushed for immigration reform. There has not been a major immigration reform bill 
since Ronald Reagan was president. Um, now, more than two decades later, you're in Congress. There's an immigration crisis. Would you be willing? Is there any way you could work with a, a conservative Republican from Texas in coming up with a bill that has tougher border security measures like they want, but also some more humane treatment of immigrants like you want? Is there is there any sort of compromise to be had? Well, actually, the House has already passed a number of immigration bills in a bipartisan way. The Senate has not taken them up. But I want to be clear, in 2013, there was a comprehensive immigration bill. I was not in Congress. I worked on it from the outside. I had to hold my nose at some parts of it because it really increased border security. But it also provided a legal immigration system for people to come in. That bill was passed with 67 bipartisan votes in the Senate. And John Boehner, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, held it up and refused to bring it to the floor for a vote. So you know what happened, Jake? We got a bunch more border security, but no fundamental reforms to the immigration system. I'm ready to work with anyone and everyone, but let's be clear that we need reforms to the system to allow people to come in, not just border security. That's not going to get us anywhere. Yeah, no, I've been covering this for more than 20 years, and what always happens is that there is a compromise uh, in the Senate uh, with maybe 10 to 15 Republican senators, a bunch of, you know, majority of Democratic senators, it passes or it's there and House Republicans kill it. It, it happened under George W. Bush at least twice. Congresswoman uh, Pramila uh, uh, Jayapal from the great state of Washington. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. Thanks, Jake. Coming up next, the force of Hurricane Fiona from mudslides to power outages. CNN is on the ground in Puerto Rico to show you the path of destruction. Plus, Prince Andrew's passed back into question after the death of his mother, the Queen. Will Prince Andrew ever make good on his promise and spill what he knows about sex abuser Jeffrey Epstein to U.S. authorities as he said he would? Plus, new surveillance video surfacing showing a fake elector inside an elections office in Georgia and in arm's reach of voting machines that had been breached the same day. Stay with us. In our national lead, Hurricane Fiona is now a major hurricane. It has grown to become a Category 3 storm. Its winds battering the islands of Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean, where heavy rains are expected to bring life-threatening flooding. A new video shows the U.S. Coast Guard assessing the damage now in Puerto Rico. CNN's Leila Santiago is on that island, where more than a million people are still struggling without electricity and without critical infrastructure, much of which is damaged. Five years ago today, Puerto Rico was ravaged by Hurricane Maria. Now barely recovered from that catastrophic storm, the island and its people are suffering again. Hurricane Fiona wiping out power to the majority of the roughly 3.1 million residents here, 60 percent of them without water and about 1,200 people housed in shelters. Officials say at least two have died on the island as a result of the storm. One man swept away by a flooded river behind his home. Another man died while trying to fill his generator with gasoline, setting it on fire. This morning, we traveled with the National Guard as they tried to clear roads in the mountainous region of Calle. Their goal? access and to start moving in much-needed supplies to these isolated areas. In the island's interior, like Calle, a very mountainous municipality, this is part of the problem. The mudslides that block the road and block access to that power substation. Rivera Santiago was gathering potable water off the side of the mountain. 
So he came to the mountainside to get water because there's no water at his house. But the, the biggest concern is without water. Can't live without water. Carlos Vargas lives just beyond a big mudslide that blocked access to the road. The National Guard had to evacuate about 35 elderly patients from a facility here before the mudslide demolished the building. We carry uh, the elderly in their chairs, in their beds, and we just run over and, and carry them over uh, the landslide so we can get them out before the house collapse. The recovery ahead not without its own set of challenges. The hurricane and now the storm, the related storm, has impacted the whole island. So we're still in the middle of this um, um, uh, event. We're basically responding at this point. Um, the next step will be recovery. We're not there yet. And Jake, when it comes to power, the governor has said this afternoon that he's fairly confident by, that by the end of the day tomorrow, a good chunk of the island will have power restored. One exception, where we are right now, the southern part of the island. I am in Ponce, an area that saw a lot of flooding. And I can tell you on the anniversary of Hurricane Maria uh, striking and quite frankly demolishing this island, there is a lot of fear among the people here uh, that history could repeat itself. All right, Leila Santiago in Puerto Rico for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Mario Hurtado. He's the chief regulatory officer at Luma Energy, which is the main power company for Puerto Rico. Uh, Mario, there are still more than a million people on the island with no electricity. What is Luma doing to restore power for these individuals? Uh, yes, good afternoon, Jake. Um, we have brought in, uh, we have all of our personnel deployed, which is more than 1,300 field electrical workers and we brought others in, including our contractors here and from the U.S. So now we have over 2,000 strong uh, out in the field. Uh, today was the first real day that we could actually get out there without being impeded, without having to ground flights, for example. Uh, we've been looking at our transmission system and assessing uh, damage as well as we can. And also with ground crews, we have started to reconnect customers. We have about 300,000 customers con reconnected at this point with service. Uh, out of about 1.5 um, million customers. So mm -hmm. we still have, a, you know, quite a ways to go. Um, unfortunately, we suffered a, um, a full blackout, <clears throat> excuse me, which, as you probably know, is, is, is a very big deal in the electrical world. It takes a lot of work. We do a lot to avoid getting to that situation. Right. Unfortunately, um, as the uh, Cat 1 hurricane brought very strong winds across the south, and we had already had probably already more than 24 hours of very strong wind, yeah. um, rains, took out several transmission lines that took out uh, a lot of our uh, power stations. Uh, and so we lost the system and then we started to rebuild immediately so from there. After Hurricane Maria in 2017, it, it took months and months for some customers to get power restored. You just heard uh, Leila Santiago mention the governor hopes power will be restored to many tomorrow, but not in the southern part of Puerto Rico. Do you have any indication how long it will take to restore electricity in the south? Well, in general, we're still doing the, assess the initial assessment. Um, and based on that, we'll uh, start, we can start talking about how long uh, our estimated time of recovery or restoration will be. It's going to take several days to get um, the bulk of our customers back on. And, you know, we're, we're shooting to get everybody on as soon as absolutely possible. Um, but we are hampered both by access uh, we're also working hand-in-hand -hand with the power generator, which we don't generate the power, but we transmit it and mm -hmm. give it to customers. 
and they've had damage at several key uh, generating facilities, um, which is impeded. So we don't have kind of a choice of some of the places that we can get power to our customers from. Right. Um, but we've made really good progress in the last uh, 48 hours. And, you know, the next 48 hours, I think we'll make a lot more progress. So Hurricane Maria devastated uh, the power grid of Puerto Rico, causing millions to lose power. Uh, the, the ramifications of that were, were devastating life and death in, in some cases. Um, that was five years ago. Since then, there have been several other major blackouts impacting the island. How can you explain Luma's failure to not strengthen the grid ahead of this storm? It's not as though hurricanes are uncommon on the island. Well, we have, uh, you know, we've been operating the system for about 15 months. Uh, It's been neglected and had underinvestment literally for decades. Uh, So we never thought we were going to be able to rebuild a system in a year. Um, So we have started that. We have 14 uh, FEMA-funded reconstruction projects already under construction. Uh, We have about that many already in advanced design and ready to get more contractors on board. Uh, We have more than 200 projects that we put in front of FEMA, uh, and it's in that FEMA process. So we have been pushing extremely hard to get going with FEMA and to get those projects and get the shovels on the ground, and we've already shown some success with that. Um, But it, it is tough going, and it does take a while. Um, uh, Maria, after, uh, excuse me, New Orleans, the New Orleans area after Katrina, um, most of that work, I mean, they were still uh, doing uh, recovery work a decade after that hurricane. We are trying to do this as quickly as we can. We have already been able to replace more than 3,000 electrical poles. We've been replacing uh, key equipment all over the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're starting behind the eight ball, and but we've been making very good progress. We still have a ways to go. All right, Mario Hurtado, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Moments ago, President Biden left the much. White House for New York City while his team is playing cleanup over comments he made about Taiwan, about COVID being over, and much more. Plus, the constant blasts in one Ukrainian town and the tactic that foreign fighters are using to expose Ukrainian forces. Stay with us. Topping our world lead today, Russia has mounted a coordinated effort to transfer stolen Ukrainian land into Putin's hands. Pro-Russian authorities in four occupied regions just called for referenda to officially join Russia. Some of those referenda start as soon as Friday as the war rages on, ever-changing battle lines. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh got access to an eastern Ukrainian town under constant shelling as Russia, desperate for soldiers, begins to recruit convicted felons into their ranks. The mood here is black and old. From a time past, Ukraine didn't feel it was winning, taking heavy losses and struggling to hold on. But the Russian enemy is something new. This is the very front line with Russian positions literally 100 metres away from where I'm standing. The Kremlin really wants the city of Bakhmut. So here, on its edges, it sent ruthless mercenaries from the Wagner Group to fight. The shelling endless. We are taken up to their vantage point from where they see the Wagner fighters rush at them, leading the Ukrainians to open fire. And it is just over there. They say that Russian Wagner mercenaries appear to try and run at them exposing Ukrainian positions so the Russian artillery can hit where they are. The fields between them charred, pockmarked. They are almost eyeball to eyeball. 
The next attack is imminent. We can see a mortar unit, the drone operator says. They're preparing to fire at us. Down in the shelter, the commander says they've captured Russian convicts who were recruited to fight. It was get shot or surrender for the convict, he says. Wagner acts professionally, not like usual infantry units. Shells continue to land all around them. Bakhmut is a mess. Russia edging towards it, but not inside. Prepared for street-to-street fighting, and meanwhile torn to pieces. The losses are heavy in exposed positions around the city, particularly here. Russia's invasion tearing through the green treasured land it claims to covet. Why do they want Bakhmut so much? They retreated elsewhere and they need a victory, something significant, he says, so they throw forces here. Of course we have casualties. Not today in our unit, but you can't avoid dead or wounded. I lost my close friend five days after we came here. There are still many people here buying a lot of Natalia's potatoes. We sold half a tonne today, she says. Who knows where the shooting's coming from or going. Don't be scared, she said. 24 hours later, and Ukrainian artillery is hitting positions on the city's edge amid reports Russia has got closer. Much fresh smoke, and it's always hard to know what Moscow thought it was hitting. Walking home with a squeaky wheel and food is Maria, back to her son. Silence and terror, in turn, enveloping the city. Jake, these four referendum are a big deal. It's Moscow trying to get a grip of a narrative after weeks of defeat. There were rumours Putin might speak tonight. That hasn't happened. And we are now looking, possibly by Monday or Tuesday, these undemocratic rubber stamps being pushed through. It puts pressure on Ukraine on the front lines here to make advances, to try and disrupt this process that Moscow's put in play. Uh, But we're looking at a week ahead now, not only a fiery rhetoric, but possible real changes and danger on the ground here, Jake. All right, Nick. Peyton Walsh in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. President Biden is bound to bring up Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine and the Ukrainian people when he addresses the United Nations General Assembly tomorrow. What is not clear is if the president will bring up another sensitive subject, China and Taiwan, even after a bold declaration on CBS 60 Minutes on Sunday. Take a listen. Would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Yes. CNN's Caitlin Collins is in New York where President Biden will speak tomorrow. Caitlin, uh, the Taiwan line is just one comment the White House seems to be trying to clarify or clean up. Biden has now said publicly three times that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense. That's not official U.S. policy, uh, and yet the White House is saying today there is no policy shift. So how do they explain this? 
Well, Jake, it's supposed to be a policy of strategic ambiguity, but the president has been very clear his stance on this, and he was explicitly so in that latest interview where he said, yes, U.S. men and women will come to Taiwan's defense in the event of a Chinese invasion. And right now, the United States provides defensive weapons to Taiwan, but the policy is supposed to be intentionally vague, not explicitly laying out what they would do if China were to invade Taiwan, as some U.S. officials obviously have fear that they could do, and it has been highlighted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the president often, time and time again, has been asked this question and has gone there, has towed that line and said, yes, there would be U.S. military involvement should China do that. His aides are downplaying it, saying that it doesn't amount to a shift in the change from strategic ambiguity and saying that this is really all just a hypothetical question. When the president of the United States wants to announce a policy change, he will do so. He has not done so. He stands behind the historic U.S. policy towards Taiwan that has existed through Democratic and Republican administrations and has helped keep peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait for decades. Now, Jake, Jake Sullivan there was saying that this is a hypothetical question, but we should note U.S. intelligence officials do believe that China is working to prepare to have the military capability to invade Taiwan, to take over Taiwan, should they decide to do so. So that's why all of this is so important. And Caitlin, uh, President Biden also raised some eyebrows when he said that the COVID pandemic is over. Now, if that's true, then the official state of emergency should end, and that would mean... 15 million Americans could lose Medicaid coverage, the pause in student loan repayments would end, and on and on, a whole bunch of policy ramifications. The White House was pressed about this today. Yeah, it's more than just semantics when it's the president saying it. And the White House is saying uh, that what the president is saying is correct, but it's complicated because what he is saying, in their words, is that it's just not the most uh, disruptive part of the COVID-19 pandemic, where people are wearing masks, where you can't go to certain events, things of that nature. He's saying that part of the pandemic is over, according to the White House. But, Jake, he was pretty clear in that interview. He said that COVID is still a problem, but he said the pandemic is over. And so it does matter when it comes to not just a general feeling, maybe some when watching this feels the pandemic is over. But when it's the president's words, it does make a difference because there is still a public health emergency in place, Jake. That's what affects Medicaid, Medicare, student loans, so many of these other factors. That is something that the White House says is not going away. It's still in effect at least until October 13th. And this also could complicate the White House's efforts to try to push for that $22 billion in COVID-19 funding. Republicans were already skeptical of it, Jake, and now they may be more so. All right, Caitlin Collins with President Biden in New York City. Thanks so much. As world leaders gather for the United Nations General Assembly, I'm going to have an exclusive U.S. interview with the French President Emmanuel Macron. You can look for that right here on The Lead tomorrow, beginning at 4 p.m. Eastern. Coming up next, the surveillance video showing fake electors in an elections office in Georgia the same day that voting machines there were breached. Stay with us. In our politics lead now, CNN has obtained new surveillance video from inside a Georgia elections office on the same day its voting systems were known to have been breached in January 2021. You can see Kathy Latham, the woman on the left with short white hair and a turquoise sweater, along with various Republican operatives who are working with a Trump attorney. They spent hours in a restricted area at the Coffee County election office. Latham is now under criminal investigation for posing as a fake elector. She has previously claimed she was not personally involved in the breach. CNN's Nick Valencia is at the Fulton County Superior Court in Atlanta, Georgia. Nick, how did these people even get access to the voting equipment? 
Jake, they did so with great ease, and it appears that they got help from the very same county officials that are tasked with securing these elections in Coffee County. And most importantly, though, it tells a much different story than what the former GOP chairwoman in Coffee County, Kathy Latham, says happened that day. Previously, Latham says that she had no involvement in this illegal data breach, but the video tells a much different uh, story, showing her for hours in a restricted area with these Trump operatives as they set up computers next to election voting equipment and appear to illegally access the data. Additionally, we also see Scott Hall, who is a Republican Georgia poll watcher who has previously admitted to being the one that chartered the flights down for these Trump operatives. All of this connects into what's happening here in Fulton County with Fonnie Willis's investigation into alleged election interference in 2020. Not only is Latham a target in the investigation in Coffee County, she's also a criminal target here for her role as a fake elector. Also, we know that these Trump operatives, uh, they were working on the behest of Sidney Powell, a former Trump campaign attorney who's been subpoenaed by Fonnie Willis to appear here. We know that uh, Sidney Powell is scheduled to appear as a witness later this week. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Georgia, thank you so much. Coming up next, new questions about Prince Andrew's past and his connections to Jeffrey Epstein. Stay with us. In our world lead, the national period of mourning has officially ended in the United Kingdom following the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Her death has revived a series of criticisms of the monarchy. New Zealand, Australia, and several African nations are considering leaving the Commonwealth altogether. Even President Biden's late Irish mother, we should note, was an outspoken critic of the Queen. Then Vice President Biden told Veep writer Georgia Pritchett for her book that, quote, When his mother visited the U.K., she had stayed in a hotel where the queen had once stayed. She was so appalled that she slept on the floor all night rather than risk sleeping on a bed that the queen had slept on, unquote. Then Vice President Biden also showed her poems that his mother wrote, quote, about her hatred of the English. But beyond those historical resentments also hanging over the royal family's heads in the present day, is Prince Andrew, whose ties to alleged sexual abuser Jeffrey Epstein and a sex abuse lawsuit against him of his own have him under intense scrutiny once again. We're now going to take a closer look at the allegations against him because even a prince cannot mourn his way out of a scandal. For some in the UK, Prince Andrew's pained loss of his mother, the Queen, does not let him off the hook for his close friendship with Jeffrey Epstein, an alleged sexual assault of a teenage girl. The prince may prefer to stay mostly out of the limelight as he grieves the loss of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, but the public appearances are bringing renewed public scrutiny of his relationship with underage sex trafficker and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, which has been immeasurably difficult for his victims, according to Spencer Coven, who represents nine of Epstein's survivors. Telling us that while the victims he represents want the world to mourn for the queen, he says, quote, Andrew should not be able to rehabilitate his image through this tragedy. The only thing that will help the healing of his past conduct would be a full accounting of his past and sitting for an interview with U.S. authorities regarding his conduct. And then there are the specific allegations Andrew sexually assaulted an underage American girl, Virginia Jufre. She says she met the senior royal through his longtime friend Epstein. He knows what happened. I know what happened. And there's only one of us telling the truth, and I know that's me. The prince has denied these accusations. I can tell you categorically, I don't remember meeting her at all. I do not remember a photograph being taken. And I've said consistently 
and, um, and frequently that we never had any sort of sexual contact, whatever. The royal, Prince Andrew, rumored to have been the Queen's favorite, later paid an undisclosed amount to Jufre in a financial settlement. He was stripped of his military patronages and the use of His Royal Highness title. Still, Andrew remains eighth in line to the throne and has had a conspicuous role in the funerary ceremonies. And he is an official, quote, counselor of state, meaning he could temporarily fill in for King Charles III if necessary. Calling the late queen, quote, dear mummy, mother, your majesty, three in one, in a statement, adding, quote, mummy, your love for a son, your compassion, your care, your confidence I will treasure forever. Following the payment to his accuser, the prince claimed in a statement he would help U.S. officials in their investigation of Epstein. Of course I am willing to help any appropriate law enforcement agency with their investigations if required, he said. But it appears the prince was actually less than willing. The former top U.S. prosecutor on that case, Jeff Berman, told me that Prince Andrew was uncooperative, to say the least. What we wanted was the information. He said he was willing to give it to us. He didn't give it to us. He stonewalled us. And as of the day I left... He was stonewalling. Berman revealing to CNN that he got nowhere with the palace or the UK government in his efforts to talk to the prince. His lawyers gave us the runaround. We even filed an MLAT request, which was an official request to interview a foreign witness with the government officials in the UK, and that got stonewalled. And now it seems even less likely that Prince Andrew will ever be held to keep his promise, leaving those seeking justice to wonder, what else officials could learn about Jeffrey Epstein and his perverse circle of associates? Coming up next, why former President Trump might be regretting his push for a special master to review those documents seized at his home. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, willing to risk their lives to have their voices heard. Iran trying to silence Hundreds of people furious over the death of an Iranian woman in the custody of the so-called morality police to her, her alleged crime. She showed her hair in public. Plus, when teachers' salaries fail to keep up with the rapidly rising cost of living, how do schools retain teachers? Well, some school districts are now becoming landlords. And leading this hour, the special master appointed to oversee the documents seized by the FBI from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate has held his first hearing. Donald Trump's legal team still will not say whether or not the former president did or did not declassify any of those documents. And now the special master says it's time for Team Trump to offer up proof. CNN's Kara Scannell joins us now live from New York. Kara, this was the first time all these parties have met in one room. Did we get a clear idea of how this process will move forward? Well, Jake, Judge Raymond Deary, who is the special master in this case, came in. He was wearing a suit, not a robe, so sending a message that he is wearing this his hat as a special master. And he said that he will issue a scheduling order. We'll know exactly what the timeline is going to be after today's hearing. One thing that was clear is that he is in charge and he is getting to the heart of the matter. He had brought up the issue of classification these documents is the heart of this, this special master review. And he said to the parties, you know, is there really a dispute here asking Trump's attorneys about this, saying, you know, if he gets prima facie evidence, something that is quite clear that a document is marked classified, that barring Trump's attorneys saying that this was declassified, he said that 
As far as I'm concerned, that's the end of it. So signaling that if something appears to be classified, that without any proof, any evidence, any pushback from the Trump side, he will determine that it's classified. So that's definitely a strong signal to the Trump team. Now, Trump's lawyers in court saying that they can't make this determination until they see the documents, uh, pushing for this review, this to be turned over quickly. Now, the judge also saying that the next time that they meet, whether it's on the phone or in person, he said it will be called the Progress Conference, emphasizing that he wants this to move forward to meet that November 30th deadline. Jake. And Kara, the Justice Department hinted at today's hearing that it's willing to appeal that ruling to the Supreme Court if the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals rejects its bid to exclude about 100 documents marked as classified from the special master's review. It seems like this is getting really complicated. Yeah, Jake. I mean, the the lawyer for the government saying that if they lose that appeal, that they will likely appeal this even further. So again, up to the Supreme Court. And they said that that could then complicate the timeline around the turning over and the sharing of classified documents. So certainly something that can become a knotty issue as they try to move ahead and expedite this review of documents and information and ultimately get to the heart of this investigation. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell in New York. Thank you so much. Let's discuss this with former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Tom Dupree and John Miller, former Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism for the New York Police Department, now working for CNN. And John, welcome to CNN. Good to have you. So you have connections with many in the intelligence community. How are they responding to all of this? Well, this is making them quite nervous. Uh, The ruling by uh, Judge Cannon that required the special master said that the special master should set about determining whether those hundred documents are classified or not. Um, As a former deputy assistant director of national intelligence, um, I'm pretty familiar with the classification process and knowing that the intelligence community looks at that and says, what's classified and what's not is an executive branch function. It's done by classification officers in agencies like the CIA and the NSA um, and the defense intelligence agency that know what it took to get that information and what the sources and methods are and whether it should be secret or top secret or higher than top secret and essentially handing that responsibility off to the judiciary um, is a real breach. Now, from what Tara Scannell tells us, Judge Deary, uh, who I know for a long time, back from when he was U.S. attorney, he seems to get that because he's saying if it says classified or top secret on it, we're going on the assumption that it's classified. Uh, So... It seems like they're going to have an uphill struggle with that argument over the hundred documents um, in that in that in that courtroom. Yeah. And Tom Dupree, uh, Trump's lawyers are are resisting the special master's request that they disclose in court, which means under oath, uh, specifics about whether or not Trump actually declassified these documents, as Trump himself has has claimed uh, publicly. Special Master Judge Raymond Deary, he questioned this request, and he suggested he's going to determine the documents were classified if Trump's lawyers don't offer any proof. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks to me like Deary is calling their bluff, and Trump's attorneys don't want to commit perjury. 
Yeah, look, I think that's a very fair assessment, Jake. And that was one of the things that surprised me about today's hearing. In other words, that particular question from the judge, where is your evidence of declassification? That can't have come as a surprise to the Trump legal team. That would be at the top of the list of questions you would anticipate the judge to ask you today. So it's surprising to me that they weren't better prepared to give him some evidence, or if they don't have any evidence, to tell him that. But I think that today's hearing really sets a tone. This is a judge who's not up for game playing. He wants the evidence. He's He's got hard questions, and he's going to get to a decision one way or the other. Trump's lawyers, John, keep dancing around the idea that maybe Trump declassified the documents. Maybe he didn't. They argue the Justice Department is making an assumption that they're actually classified. And, quote, however, the government has not yet proven this critical fact. The president has broad authority governing classification of and access to classification, classified documents, unquote. It, clearly, John Deary's not buying this. He basically said, no, you have to prove it, Team Trump. Uh, do you think yeah, that this is just a delay tactic? Well, I think that this entire process, whether that's the intended consequence of the legal maneuvers or the unintended consequence, is, is factored towards delay, which I think works in the Trump team's favor. But in the words of uh, former CIA officer and CNN analyst Phil Mudd, uh, he and I could do this entire job over a 12-pack in 20 minutes. It's well a well-trod path. Uh, you look back to the Hillary Clinton case. They took the emails, they sent them back to the intelligence agencies, and they said, is this information classified or is it not? And then those answers were returned. I suspect what we're going to see here is that they're going to be sent back to the originating agencies who are going to say, this is classified, it's still classified, and... To get to the point of that argument, the president couldn't wave a wand and declassify documents as president. He had to send that word to those agencies. He can't declassify his copy and then have every copy in the files of the U.S. government still be top secret. There's a process there, and no one, including his own lawyers, are alleging that that process was followed. And Tom, let's say hypothetically the team Trump admits to the special master Okay, you caught us. Trump didn't declassify anything. What might that mean, hypothetically? You know, legally, it may not have a huge amount of significance one way or the other. The three criminal offenses that the Justice Department was pursuing when they executed the warrant at Mar-a-Lago, none of them turn on whether the documents that were seized were classified or not. So legally, it may not have direct significance. Where I think it could potentially have some bite, though, is if it turns out that these documents were, in fact, declassified, that would give the Trump team more ammunition to argue that, look, this is not a debate over national security documents because they've been declassified. It's merely a record story storage dispute or the like. So I think that ultimately may be the biggest significance over whether these were classified or not, is that it could bear on Merrick Garland's ultimate decision whether he wants to prosecute someone here. Tom and John, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Why the Department of Homeland Security is rejecting a plan to protect election workers, the CNN exclusive next. Then there's a new development with the migrants flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. We're going to tell you who's being sued. That's next. Just into the lead, a migrant advocacy group has filed a class action lawsuit against, among others, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis on behalf of the migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard last week. DeSantis had claimed credit for flying two planes full of migrants from Texas to Florida and then to Massachusetts. Let's get straight to CNN's Miguel Marquez. Miguel, tell us about this lawsuit. Yeah, this was filed in federal court in Massachusetts. Uh, Ron DeSantis and his uh, Secretary of Transportation for the state of Florida are named in it, as well as other officials in Florida. 
it doesn't tell us a lot more than we already knew what happened uh, with those flights going from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, but it's much more granular. Uh, one part of it says that uh, the accomplices of Governor DeSantis designed and executed a premeditated, fraudulent, and illegal scheme centered on exploiting the vulnerability for the sole purpose of their own personal, financial, and political interests. We have a better sense from this lawsuit as well as what they were promised and how they were sort of induced to get on those planes. Uh, everything from $10 McDonald's uh, uh, food cards uh, uh, to, to, you know, for for food for people who were actually hungry and needed food very badly. They were offering them $10 McDonald's food cards. Uh, and then they were also offering them, if they got on the plane, employment, housing, educational opportunities, things that we have heard from before from some of these individuals. One line in this really sticks out, though. These immigrants who are pursuing proper channels for lawful immigration status in the United States experience cruelty akin to the, what they were fleeing in their own country. They are asking for at least $75,000 for each individual of this suit. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Turning now to our politics lead at CNN Exclusive, a proposal to combat false information about elections and to protect election workers from harassment was recently rejected by the Department of Homeland Security, sources tell CNN. This is leaving some officials frustrated and concerned that the harassment will worsen as the election approaches in just 49 days and wondering if the Biden administration even has a plan. CNN's Sean Lingus joins us now live. Sean, uh, you obtained a, a letter from election officials in Florida and Colorado urging the Department of Homeland Security to approve part of this proposal. Why won't they? Well, Jake, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, there were some legal concerns at the Department of Homeland Security about what role they could have in combating mis and disinformation. And there was also uh, concerns about whether it would be ready uh, by uh, election day. But um, the bottom line is that as flawed as the proposal may have be, been, the, uh, there's a, a really sharp demand for protection from election workers. And there's a little bit of a ambiguity in the government about federal government about who is responsible for this. Um, the FBI investigates threats. Uh, DHS can help prepare election officials for those threats, both physical and cyber. But who's there in the moment? Uh, and the letter you mentioned that we obtained um, you know, urged uh, DHS to adopt this proposal and said, as election workers, we are ourselves a crucial part of the nation's critical infrastructure in need of and deserving of protection from the efforts to intimidate us and disrupt the election process. So there was an appeal to do something to combat the harassment. Uh, and it's unclear um, if there is a concerted effort within the government to to address that at this moment, Jake. There is harassment, obviously. Election officials reporting more than 1,000 hostile or threatening interruptions uh, just since 2020. Is anything being done to protect election officials? Yes, but uh, election officials say not enough. The Justice Department has investigated and in some cases brought prosecution against people who threaten violence against election workers. And DHS has provided them with security guidance and uh, relayed threats to them. But there's a lot more that they say can be done because this, this you know, tide of, of, of violent threats, uh, which is spurred by mis- and disinformation, has only grown more acute since 2020, Jake. All right, Sean Langus, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, and Gloria, um, this seems like kind of a big failure that election officials still feel vulnerable and yeah. that the Biden administration is not doing enough. I mean, remember the January 6th committee famously, Shea and Ruby got up there and talked about how they were doxxed and how they needed protection, and how the President of the United States uh, at the time, uh, you know, was attacking them. Um, so yes, and I think you could see this coming. It's a bureaucratic mess. You could see it coming back last May when the so-called Disinformation Governance Board 
was a bad name, wasn't it? <laughs> right. Disinformation Government Board was disbanded after it was attacked uh, because it was thought to be too partisan. Some Republicans didn't like the person who was running it, et cetera. So they disbanded it, as Sean was saying, instead of fixing it. And so now election workers are complaining, who's going to protect us? And then the question is, as you hear from state officials all over the country, who's going to want to be an election worker because they feel unprotected? So, um, Nia, I want to get your reaction to some fascinating comments Congresswoman uh, Liz Cheney uh, made uh, last night about the hold uh, that Donald Trump has on so many of her colleagues. She was talking about the events on January 6th. Um, when there was obviously so much violence, and even after the violence, two-thirds of the House Republican Caucus uh, voted to uh, disenfranchise the voters of of Pennsylvania. Uh, Take a listen uh, to to the Congresswoman. It's only actually required that one House member object, but there were so many who wanted to show they were objecting that they'd set up these sign-up sheets in the cloakroom. And as I was sitting there, a member came in and he signed his name on each one of the state's sheets. And then he said under his breath, the things we do for the orange Jesus. <laughs> the things we do for orange Jesus, obviously a reference to President Trump. Yes. And listen, I mean, uh, we have reported on the Republicans who privately have all sorts of disparaging things to say about Donald Trump, uh, but publicly stand behind him, cheerlead him in that instance, uh, signing on to a part of the big lie. Uh, And they do it for Orange Jesus, but they also do it for themselves, right? They do it so they can remain in good standing with their uh, constituents, remain in good standing with the members of their party. And that doesn't look like it's going to change with a certain amount of them. And we've obviously seen what happened with Liz Cheney going against Donald Trump. She won't be in Congress uh, once the new term convenes in in January. So listen, this is all self-interested. It's all about a sort of transactional relationship uh, with Donald Trump. And this is why uh, he is remain so powerful over these last years. And there's, a, there's a, an effort in the House, um, a bipartisan measure, to uh, clear up any ambiguity about the Electoral Count Act. Uh, the idea that, that I mean, there really is not any ambiguity I, I, in, in the views of a lot of people, but this notion that the vice president can just unilaterally say, I'm not counting the votes from Arizona or whatever. Um, and House Minority Leader, Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy, is whipping against it, meaning he is telling Republican House members to vote against it, um, even though Liz Cheney worked on it. It's not a partisan bill. And a similar bill has a fair amount of Republican support in the Senate. So I I hope the Democrats can overcome this. I I can't imagine anything more partisan than saying you don't want fair elections. It's not just it's not just this question of whether the vice president can decide which votes to count. That's clear under the 12th Amendment. He has no. So the, the the Electoral Count Act, which goes back to Reconstruction, so the 1800s. But it's very rickety. For example, it allows only one member of the House, right. one member of the right. Senate to challenge an entire state. Liz Cheney, Congressman Lofgren, they want to raise that. It's a lot of very good government stuff. Not, it's not going to advantage my party or Urban's no. party. It's just the yeah. sort of thing we ought to have yeah. so we have a sensible, clear election. Amazing. Paul and I agree on this, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, cats and dogs sleeping together. So, you know, as Paul points out, right, in, in this last election, you had one, one member could go down to the floor and object, and for any reason, right? And so... The, the, the proposals both in the House and Senate that they're going to vote on kind of limit that to certain exceptions. You can only go down under certain exceptions and, and object and, and raises, I think, the House is one-fifth. Maybe it's one-third and the Senate is one-third. Right. So it's reversed. So, so you know, it, it raises the amount of people that, you know, required. And I, and I think it's just good government, right? It'll clear up 
anything that's going to possibly happen this next election. And it's very important. And if they can't work this out, they can't work anything out. Now, this is this, is, Honestly, this should be a layup. There's not that huge a difference. But it has to be a clean bill. I don't know what the vote yes. in the House is, right? It should be, if, if, if right. people are serious about getting this done, they need to bring that specific provision right. to the yeah. floor, not, not it gunk it up right. with a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, And it's incredibly important now, given some yep. of the folks who are running in these different states yeah. uh, who could interfere right. uh, in this process. Right. Well, should be on, that, on that subject, the Republican nominee to be the top election official uh, in Arizona, uh, Mark Fincham, he's a, he's a big sharer of Donald Trump's election lies. Uh, this is what he told a Time magazine correspondent when asked whether he believes Biden won Arizona, which Biden did. Quote, it strains credibility. Fincham responded, isn't it interesting that I can't find anyone who will admit that they voted for Joe Biden? Unquote. Fincham was then asked whether it was possible people he <laughs> didn't know personally had voted for Biden. His response in a fantasy world, anything is possible. I mean, who's living in the fantasy world here? I don't want to think about Mr. Fincham's fantasies. Uh, certainly, uh, I, this, this needs to be electoral infrastructure week, right? Coming back to the earlier story that you all talked about. We need force protection. For the women and men who are working. This guy's on the record saying he would not have certified the vote. Same with the woman running for governor as a Republican nominee, Carrie Lakes. She wouldn't have certified. It's just astonishing. Again, that's that's going to be a big problem. That's going to be a big problem as you come forward 24. And not just the people who won't certify, but let's let's take a look in Pennsylvania, for example. We had this Republican primary. Very tough. Counting votes, looking at things, right? There's a distinct possibility that because of challenges and, and delays that, you know, come December 14th, when you have to certify, they're not going to be ready in Montgomery County. They're not going to be ready in Bucks County because of court challenges. And they get dragged out. What happens then? Right? What happens then in Pennsylvania if you can't certify? There may be a plan for that already <laughs> among some people, right? Well, Liz Cheney and Zoe Lofkin's bill would move the safe harbor no, that, that, a little that, bit that, more but, time. But that's my point There's about why this needs to happen. Like that. right? That's why it needs to happen. But then also in Pennsylvania, we should point out, Doug Mastriano, the Republican nominee for governor, who is an election liar, uh, he, in Pennsylvania, you don't elect the Secretary of State. He picks the the governor the appoints governor. the Secretary of State. So he could, and likely would, appoint another election liar. And there you have another state or commonwealth in Pennsylvania's case where the person in charge of the elections is, you know, is opposed to democracy. Yeah, I mean, in state after state after state. I mean, Donald Trump has picked people, handpicked people, uh, who could throw out the results of an election if he doesn't win that state or commonwealth. So it is a, a critical time. Uh, 2020, we, we averted disaster because there were people in these individual states right. uh, who followed the law and followed the, the will of the people. But it could be that in 2024, it's very different. What do you make of people like Governor Youngkin of, of Virginia, <laughs> who knows yeah. better? And his, is not an election liar, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, endorsing and campaigning Carrie for people Lake. like Carrie Lake in Arizona. Well, I think he wants to be president of the United States at some point. Uh, I don't think he's hidden that at all. He's term limited. And I think you see a lot of uh, Republicans who are members of the so-called establishment or what was once the Republican <laughs> establishment. Right. You're laughing. I'm not sure it exists. Trying to figure out. It's where David. The, it's he's the only one left. Right. <laughs> where the party? Where? What's the future of the party? And it's Machiavellian. You know, is the control of the state house or control of the governorships? Or, um, I mean, uh, the Senate more important than any one particular candidate? I think Mitch McConnell in his own head is going through that same process. But Blake Masters, Mitch he's McConnell's... He's not funding Blake Masters, right? But, no, he yeah. is. He's helping Blake Masters. Oh, he's helping Blake Yeah, he's helping Blake Masters, who's another election liar in Arizona. Mitch McConnell is now wants, doing that. Yeah, so his PAC, yeah. so he has to make these decisions about his PAC. And I think there are some people he's deciding not 
to fund and some people he will fund. But what does Mitch McConnell want? He wants control of the Senate. Exactly. But you know what? David's a Republican. He wants Republicans to control the Senate. But David's clear-eyed about this. I've never... Listen, I, I mean... I've never heard you say anything positive about a, an election liar. No, listen, I mean, as much as I wish Donald Trump would have won, he didn't. Right? And so that's just how it goes. I like, my, I like the Steelers to win every weekend and my <laughs> Army football team to win every weekend, too. just doesn't happen. It's life. You lose some. You brush yourself off. You fight the next fight, right? But and, would and, you but, vote but, for an election liar no, over, well, listen, listen, over I, a Democrat? Listen, now, I, I don't know. Again, it's, you know, it's taking everything into consideration. Right? You have to look at the whole candidate because there are a lot of things I don't agree with, right? So uh, it and, sounds and like you for, would. No, listen, I, and there are a lot of things I don't agree yeah. with with candidates that I vote for, right? right. So but if you're it, Mitch McConnell, what do you do? What do you do? Will you um, allow the lie to, sp- to spread across? No, I, I don't know if Mitch McConnell... Donald Trump's been lying, yeah. but when other responsible Republicans who are not crazy like Trump don't tell the truth, then the lie grows. All right, thanks to one and all, I don't think we're going to resolve this right now. <laughs> Hundreds of protesters are risking their lives to stand up for an Iranian woman who died in the government's custody. They say that the government killed her. Her crime? She showed her hair in public. Stay with us. of Iranians risking their lives to protest the country's ultra-conservative dress code for women and much more. A human rights group says five people are dead as the Iranian government cracks down on these demonstrations. They were sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini while she was in the custody of Iran's notorious morality police. She was detained for the crime of showing her hair in public. As CNN's Jamana Karache reports, in a brave show of defiance, women in Iran's capital of Tehran are now removing their state-mandated hijabs. There is so much anger on the streets of Tehran and other Iranian cities. A crackdown by authorities has not stopped these defiant Iranians. According to one human rights group, several protesters have been killed and injured in these countrywide demonstrations, sparked by the death of a young woman while in the custody of the country's morality police. Masa Amini, a Kurdish Iranian, was detained last Tuesday by the force tasked with enforcing the country's strict Islamic dress code, including the headscarf. She was taken away to a so-called re-education center. It was the last time her family says they saw her awake. Later that day, the authorities say she fell into a coma. Amini died on Friday. Her family and rights activists blame her death on the brutality of the notorious police force. Authorities have called her death an unfortunate incident. On Friday, they released this edited CCTV video they claim shows Amini at the so-called re-education center. State TV says she appeared unwell while speaking to a center expert before she collapsed and was rushed to hospital. Police say she had a heart attack. Her family says she was a healthy 22-year-old with no pre-existing heart conditions. The Iranian president ordered an investigation into her death on Friday, and officials say they've carried out an autopsy and are reviewing it. The streets have responded with more protests. Many don't believe the government would deliver a credible investigation. And despite the history of ruthlessness in dealing with demonstrations, protests appear to spread this week. Amini's death has reignited the debate over the role and the very existence of the morality police, which has been repeatedly accused of using violence in the past. If they are supposed to be present, there is no need for so much violence and creating fear among the people. 
I am strongly against this because we are talking about a cultural issue. It's not possible to apply a cultural issue by force. As the Iranian president appears at the UN General Assembly in New York this week, women are back out on the streets saying enough is enough. Some brave enough to remove their headscarves as they chant death to the dictator. And Jake, tonight the United Nations Acting Commissioner for Human Rights says she is very concerned about the reported uh, excessive and unnecessary use of force against the protesters. She says that the tragic death of Masa Amini, the allegations of torture and ill-treatment must be investigated, but by an independent and competent authority that especially ensures that Masa's family has access to justice and accountability. All right, Jamana Karachi, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Now over in Ukraine, an attempted land grab of massive proportions. Pro-Russian authorities in eastern and southern Ukraine are, are trying to annex large sections of Ukraine's internationally recognized territory by holding hurried so-called referenda on joining Russia. Here's Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder this afternoon. This is uh, simply an information operation that's meant to distract from the uh, difficult state that the Russian military currently finds itself in right now. Former Secretary of Defense under President Trump, Mark Esper, uh, joins us right now. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, Mr. Secretary. So the NATO Secretary General called these referenda proposals a sham. Do you agree? Completely. Completely sham elections, but it looks like they will do it as they move to annex the territory and claim that it's theirs in the face of a bold counteroffensive by the Ukrainians. So they do it, and the Western world knows it's not real. The Ukrainians know it's not real. So who are they fooling? Well, they're fooling nobody, but they may use it internally for their own propaganda. They may use to set it up as a means to now be defending Russia. But the interesting thing will be to see who lines up alongside them, North Korea, Iran. But what about China and India? That will tell us a lot about where Beijing and New Delhi stand on this issue. Um, I want to ask, speaking of China, I want to ask you about in an interview that aired Sunday, President Biden reiterated this this pledge that he'd made in public before that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if it were invaded by China. The White House is now, as they do, try to downplay his comments, saying he was just answering a hypothetical. He was not announcing any sort of policy change. But as you know, he, he said this before. Um, what's your reaction to it? I mean, do you fundamentally agree with him anyway? Well, he said it four times now. I think he's spot on. And they're not trying to downplay it. They're trying to completely undermine him to say there's no policy change. Look, I've been saying for months now since I went to Taipei just before Speaker Pelosi that the one China policy has outlived its usefulness and we need to move away from strategic ambiguity if we are going to deter a Chinese invasion of, the, of Taiwan. So you think President Biden uh, is saying what he actually believes? Yes, and you, and you think he's right? I do, absolutely. And, and a lot of people who know and understand China would agree that if we want to avoid a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, we need to send a clear signal, unambiguous signal to Beijing that uh, we will stand behind this young democracy. In the same way that the U.S. is standing behind Ukraine with giving all sorts of lethal aid? Well, I think that's where we, we, where we would begin with lethal aid. And of course, the administration this summer approved a multi-billion dollar package of arms to Taiwan. Now, there's more we could do and should do. And we need to continue to build allies and partners around Taiwan, the Japanese, the Australians, the Koreans, and the Western Western Europe as well. Interesting. I want to get your reaction to, to Iran, because we're, uh, today French President Emmanuel Macron, who we're going to be interviewing tomorrow on the lead, he met with uh, the president of Iran, 
uh, Ibrahim Raisi at, at the United Nations and told him that the ball's in Iran's court regarding this stalled nuclear deal. Do you think that Western nations should be uh, actively engaging with a regime that, as you see, is oppressing its people? Well, of course, the oppression is horrible. It's a fragile theocracy that uh, who knows what will happen if the Ayatollah passes sometime in the, in the near future. He's on his deathbed, apparently. That's, that's right. So this all kind of plays in. But look, I think we have to continue diplomatic negotiations with the Iranians. Uh, President Biden has promised to lengthen and strengthen a new nuclear deal. We'll see if that happens. I'm very skeptical. But we cannot allow the Iranians to acquire a nuclear weapon. That would com- com- uh, completely change the calculus in the Middle East. And for the world's greatest expo- exporter of terrorism, it's just simply a situation we can't live with. What do we do about Iran oppressing its people, as we saw? I mean, this is, it's insane. This woman um, yeah. was arrested by the morality piece, police because she was showing some of her hair. Yeah, it's, it's And terrible. now she's dead, and it's, the people are protesting in the streets, and they're being killed by the Iranians. It's the freedom-loving people of Tehran want to be underneath this oppressive rule of the theocracy. And look, she was killed. We learned in the protest today the police may have killed a 10-year-old and, and others. It just cannot go on. At some point, this brittle regime is going to collapse. For 40 years now, we've been dealing with it, as have other countries in the region. And uh, hopefully at some point in time, the people of Tehran will, will get the government they deserve and not what they have. You recently wrote a piece uh, about the decline of the U.S. military's all-volunteer force. And, and you cited high rates of obesity, drug use, mental health problems, criminal records among young people. What do you think is the problem? It's a strategic national challenge driven by cultural and other factors, demographic factors, that we have to arrest or that we will find ourselves at some point in time with an unavailable pool of mil- people, young people to serve in the United States military. And, and at that point, what do we do? Do we risk our military, our professional military, or do we have to look at some form of conscription? I don't think we want to do the latter because we have the best military in the world. So I think it's important for a number of reasons for really at the national level between the White House and the Congress get together uh, I recommended a, a, a commission, just like the commission 50 years ago that was formed, to establish the all-volunteer force, meet, and figure out ways to address these problems. All right. Former Defense Secretary Mark Asper, thanks so much for being here. Tomorrow I'm going to have an exclusive U.S. interview with the French President Emmanuel Macron. You can look for that right here on The Lead tomorrow beginning at 4 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, when rent is astronomical, how can teachers afford to live near their jobs on teachers' salaries? The temporary solution some school districts are exploring. Stay with us. In our money lead, inflation and surging rent is pushing out teachers who cannot afford to live in the areas where they work. CNN's David Culver takes a closer look now at how this problem is affecting educators across the United States. For Shanika Witten, it is a struggle that starts before the sun's up. A single mom living in Los Angeles battling debilitating MS. I'm right here in the VIP section. (laughs) And yet still determined to get to work on time. She let us tag along on the drive, telling me about her journey. There's been months where I would worry about, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to afford to pay rent this month. Shanika's worked more than 20 years in special education, always for the L.A. school system. But rising rents and a surge in cost of living have nearly forced her and other school employees out. It's sad to live the way we are because of inflation. And everything is going up except your paycheck. Your paycheck is not going up. So it's like, oh, Lord, how am I going to continue to survive? It's a common burden felt by teachers and other school employees nationwide. On average, rents have nearly doubled in the past 10 years. 
cost of living increasing at roughly six times the rate it was a decade ago. To retain teaching talent, school systems are now doubling as both employers and landlords. From mountainous Eagle County, Colorado, to the beach paradise of Maui in Hawaii, school districts are funding affordable housing for staff. But construction is often years off, leaving some school districts, like Milpitas and San Jose, to act urgently, asking parents in this message to step forward if they have a room for rent. Some 66 people are already offering their homes to educators. Also in Silicon Valley, this former convent, no longer for nuns, now used as teacher housing. The National Education Association supports these kind of measures, affordable housing, and more pay for teachers. Back at Norwood Learning Village in L.A., where Shanika lives, the need is now. The demand for these apartments is soaring. This property has 29 units altogether. Nearly 600 people are on the wait list, hoping just one of them opens up. Most of those individuals work for the school system. Yeah, the need is really great. That's just basically what that means. Sam Cheng manages the facility and lives here with his wife, a teacher, and their kids. When you hand over the keys, what's the reaction? Uh, Normally it's a very positive, joyous, momentous type of reaction. A lot of people, they almost feel in disbelief because of not only the price that they're getting the unit for, but the quality of the housing here. In a county where the average rent for a three-bedroom is $3,000 a month, Shanika is paying less than half that and feels like one of the lucky ones. Living where I am, paying what I pay, it's it's a blessing. It's, It's a blessing. So, Jake, this gets even more complicated for full-time teachers here in Los Angeles. They start making around $56,000 a year, but that puts them in this difficult middle ground. They earn too much to qualify for California's affordable housing, but not enough to pay for what they argue to be convenient and comfortable housing. And so that has left school systems here in L.A. and across this country trying to figure out desperately how to recruit and retain what is a dwindling workforce. Jake? All right, David Culver in Los Angeles for us. Thank you so much. How one disabled veteran was inspired to help other men and women in similar situations. That's next in our Champions for Change series. In CNN's Champions for Change series, we're going to highlight extraordinary people who lift up others. When retired Marine Sergeant Adam Kisleski was serving in Iraq at just 21 years old, an explosion changed his life forever. Dozens of surgeries later, Adam has adjusted to life without an arm and a leg. But none of it would have been possible without the help of an organization close to my heart, Homes for Our Troops, which also inspired Adam to help other disabled veterans. I deployed to Iraq in 2005, operated in and around Fallujah. There was a school and there was a a bomb uh, rigged to the door, so we opened it. It exploded, killed the lieutenant that was with me, James Cathy. I stayed conscious the entire time um, up until my first surgery, so I pretty much immediately knew that my my left arm and right leg were gone. It was a challenge, you know, from going, you know, to be completely independent, you know, suddenly, you know, bedridden, you know, relying on other people to try to take care of you. And I was newly married, too, so certainly put my wife through a lot uh, really early on. At some point, you, you, you and your wife realized that, like, the house you're living in 
is not working for the new situation. It's a nice home, you know, nothing uh, particularly special, but it was built on uh, three floors. Uh, but it wasn't until we had our, our son um, that we realized what a challenge it was, not only uh, difficult, but also dangerous. I was covering President Obama's uh, State of the Union address, and one of the guests he had was a veteran who had lost both his legs. He had a home that had been given to him uh, by this group called Homes for Our Troops. Its mission was to find severely wounded veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan and to provide them with specially designed homes that were mortgage-free. Some other veterans with Homes for Our Troops that uh, really encouraged us to apply, and we were reluctant. Why were you reluctant? It's always easy to you know, just say others are, are more important. So you moved into this home 11 years ago? Yeah, 11 and a half years. And what does living in this home allow you to do? It's uh, every bit as significant as getting blown up in the, the first place. I don't think we recognized all of the, the challenges that we were facing until we uh, moved in and realized that we didn't have to deal with them anymore. But it's not so low that it's uncomfortable for people uh, who aren't in a wheelchair. The bad news is that you can also have access to the dishwasher, so you don't get out of, you don't get out of. It is bad news. What I didn't really anticipate was the uh, financial stability that you know, not having a mortgage you know, provided. So I was able to, uh, to leave my job and go back to school. And most importantly, uh, was able to go to work for nonprofits, providing other opportunities for veterans. Adam was grievously wounded while serving for this nation. Nobody would begrudge him leading whatever kind of life he led after these wounds, but he's an inspiration. I know you're in the Veterans Advisory Group for Homes for Our Troops. I actually helped stand that, uh, yeah. that program up. So Homes for Our Troops has a, a tagline of um, building homes and rebuilding lives, but always argues that the rebuilding lives element is the, the more important you know, part of what they do. We wanted to make sure that um, you know, the guys that were doing well were in a uh, position to kind of help mentor some of the guys that maybe weren't doing as well or didn't have some of the same opportunities. I went to the key ceremony, giving a home, to one of these veterans in Virginia, and that was it. It was as if this incredibly worthy charity had picked me, uh, and they asked me to be an ambassador. So the key ceremony is a pretty special event because it gets the whole community involved. I'm glad I'm gonna become more of a role model for people that think they're disabled but actually aren't. It's uh, a real honor to be here. Excited to welcome you as uh, part of our family at Homes for Our Troops. Thank you. And he's more active than most people I know. He is more charitable than most people I know. My life's goal now is just to try to provide some of these opportunities for other veterans and help them out wherever I can. Frankly, I get more out of it than I ever put into it. An incredible guy. Learn more about Homes for Our Troops and No Person Left Behind Outdoors on my Twitter account at Jake Tapper, and please be sure to tune in to CNN this Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern for the Champions for Change special. There are so many of these bugs on the planet that scientists say the numbers are, quote, unimaginable, but they're going to try to imagine them. That's next. In our buried lead, if you've ever wondered just how many ants live on Earth, well, the answer is nearly 20 quadrillion. Scientists from the University of Hong Kong analyzed 489 studies from around the world to not only figure out how many ants there are, but their weight as well, which I'm sure you were also wondering about. The result, about 12 megatons of biomass. That outweighs all of the wild birds and mammals 
on the planet, which, of course, is the third thing you were wondering about. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. We actually read them. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.